So hello to everybody. My name is Fran Stoddard. And today the Orton Family Foundation is pleased to offer this event on how story gathering can lead to action with one of our partners, the Pennsylvania Humanities Council. Gathering, listening to, and sharing stories strengthens the fabric of a community by bringing people together in conversations about what they love, about where they live, and what they'd like to change. Hearing from residents can also lead to discoveries that the communities rally around, such as an abandoned African-American church in Pennsylvania or an historic theater in Colorado. Today's three speakers come with different but meaningful experiences that shed light on how storytelling enriches a community and leads to positive change. Joining us are Mimi Ijima. She's the Director of Programs and Special Projects for the Pennsylvania Humanities Council. Hi, Mimi. Hi, Fran. Great to um, have you here. And uh, we'll introduce everybody, and then we'll get right back to you. Uh, and through the heart and soul story, our next guest, or through a heart and soul story, our next guest, Danny Smith, found her ancestor's grave and pitched in to save the contents of a nearly lost church and cemetery. You'll hear her story soon. Welcome, Danny. Thank you. Good to be here. Great. And Elaine Brett is a resident of the North Fork Valley in Colorado and an active in that community's Heart and Soul Project and with the Friends of the Paradise Theater. Thanks for joining us, Elaine. Hello, everybody from Western Colorado. <laughs> so thank you all for joining us today. Before we get to our program, I'm just going to cover a few quick logistics. So each guest will offer a brief five- to seven-minute presentation. Then we'll have an interactive time for questions from today's participants. Many of you have already sent in questions. Thank you for that. We have over 150 res uh, registrants for our call today from across North America and beyond, so we'll be muting our listeners to get as clean an audio signal as possible. In your email is a link to our Google document. It's a shared online document for note-taking and questions so you can interact with us. You can open that document in your browser to follow along while Orton's Caitlin Davison takes notes. These notes will be proofread and refined after the call, providing a great resource for you in the future. We encourage you to open the Google Doc now to check it out. You can add your own comments or questions there in real time in the edit mode. It's a good idea to skim through there now to see the questions that have already been submitted to avoid redundancy. The edit mode in Google Docs is limited to 50 contributors at a time, so if you're not active in the document, please return to the view-only mode to allow others to contribute. We will also leave this document up after the call for your continued input and reference. Then, in a few days, we'll send links to the call notes and the recording to all registrants. So uh, please participate um, during or after the call to help all of us uh, just get better at, at what we do around storytelling. If you're having any trouble with Google Docs during the call, clicking the refresh icon should fix it. If you're having any technical issues, you can email Caitlin Davison at cdavison at wharton.org. Thanks. So now on to our guests. Mimi Ijima is the Director of Programs and Special Projects for the Pennsylvania Humanities Council. Mimi leads PHC's efforts to strengthen communities through the humanities and by bringing community heart and soul to towns in the keynote state. We love our partnership with PHC. Welcome, Mimi, and go ahead. Thank you so much, Fran, for the nice introduction. 
And I want to say how I'm really excited to be able to connect with others involved in this work today, especially folks from Pennsylvania. I saw the list of participants and was wowed by how stories and storytelling are alive and well here. And I want to give a special shout out to our PA Heart and Soul teams, our talented and energetic project coordinators, their leadership teams, and their dedicated volunteers over in Needville, Williamsport, and Greater Carlisle. Thank you. So the Pennsylvania Humanities Council, I'm just going to do a little um, introduction about who we are. Um, you know, the PHC, which, which is usually how we call it, is an independent partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. And we're part of a network of 56 state humanities councils across the nation and U.S. territories. At PHC, we're a little bit different from the other councils. We put the humanities in action to create positive change. We work with communities across the state, and stories are at the heart of our work. Today, I'd like to tell you how shifting our focus in moving from history to stories helped us put the humanities in action and led us to partner with the Orton Family Foundation. So public history, um, if you're familiar with the state councils, is a big part of the work that we do. Um, in the past, part of my job was to understand our state's passion for history. And we're a state that really loves history. We have so many more historical organizations than our neighbors up in New York. But to be honest, I, I really struggled with this. Um, many of the, pro the grant proposals that we receive for public history projects celebrated the past without accounting for the present, never mind the future. Projects commemorating declining or long since departed industries were pretty common. You know, we're a Rust Belt state where prosperity has moved away from many of our towns decades ago. And I often wondered, you know, thought to myself, you know, whether our history projects helped or hurt Pennsylvanians' ability to navigate their present and to build their future. So to give you an example, years ago we awarded a grant to support an oral history project in a town with a strong coal mining legacy and during the site visit, during a site visit that we made more recently, we realized that the grantee's narrative of the town had a single-minded focus on coal mining and an aging generation of coal miners to the exclusion of the narratives and perspectives of those with lesser say, you know, including the young women and members of the farming community. And this one-note narrative excluded differing views and ideas that might bring about change. So a group of high-achieving teens who took us on a tour, you know, of the town openly, you know, said, told us that more than coal mining, the town needed new opportunities for young adults who ended up having to leave the area after graduating. You know, with limited prospects, the town was struggling. You know, I had that site visit in mind as my PhD colleagues and I refocused our mission on improving Pennsylvania's futures through civic engagement and community development. But I want to stress that while PHC has moved away from directly funding history projects, we have certainly not abandoned history and heritage. So we learned from economists at Penn State's Center for Community and Economic Development that stories of the past 
contain kernels of what we think our future could be. And also that failure to consider these stories is at the root of many failed community and economic development efforts. Not reconciling divergent community narratives prevent a community from evolving. And last, for members of disenfranchised groups, understanding historical as well as cultural and social frameworks and the opportunities it has provided or denied is the first step in civic engagement. So our current work with the Orton Family Foundation on community heart and soul immerses us in history and heritage, but the process puts history in a community context and looks to the future. What it does is it promotes listening to understanding others. Through heart and soul, community leaders collect, share, and analyze stories, particularly from hidden or missing voices. Then, in collaboration with others, they create an inclusive and co cohesive community narrative. And key to that is genuine, agenda-free listening. So true and open listening compels people to rethink what they might have thought and to rethink old narratives and come up with new ones. So these new, and what these new narratives do is help reconcile those divergent narratives. It puts the past in its rightful place and provides a foundation for the future. You know, I've seen this method at work in, you know, th there are three Pennsylvania communities. And I'm delighted that all of you now will have the chance to hear Danny Smith's story, which came through the Greater Carlisle Heart and Soul Project. As our state's leader in the, in the public humanities, we at the PHC are striving to demonstrate how the humanities can create, can contribute to creating better futures for people in our state. And community heart and soul is playing a huge role for us. And I'm so thankful to the Orton Family Foundation for sharing this amazing model with us in Pennsylvania. So back to you, Fran. Okay. Thank you so much, Mimi. Thanks for kind of setting up. Um, how this is working in Pennsylvania. And now for a fantastic story. Let's go right to um, a little storytelling here and then um, back to uh, another heart and soul practitioner. So um, Danielle Smith uh, grew up in Milton, Pennsylvania, not far from Middleburg, Pennsylvania, where she currently homeschools her two children. She is a great-great-granddaughter of a Civil War soldier who served in the U.S. Colored Troops Story gathering by the Greater Carlisle Heart and Soul Project in Mount Holly Springs led to the discovery of an abandoned African-American church and cemetery where Danny's family then discovered their ancestor's grave. Her family has since been instrumental in the early steps to preserve both the church and the cemetery. Welcome, Danny. Thank you so much. So nice to be so with I'm you. So I'm welcoming today. you. I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to go over it, but I'm going to try to set up your story. Okay. So um, so this is, as I understand it, the Greater Carlisle um, Heart and Soul Team, led by a Dr. Lindsay Varner, were in the process of story gathering when they referred to the elderly Gumby sisters, whose family had for generations lived in Mount Holly Springs. During an interview with 80-year-old Harriet Gumby, they found out that a 19th century one-room African Methodist Episcopal or AME Zion Church built by Harriet's grandfather, who also happened to serve as a pastor there, had been closed in the 70s and had become so covered in vines that it was now nearly invisible to the community. And many people had forgotten this building even existed. 
But the Gumbies knew it was there, and they also made sure that the lawn of its small cemetery was mowed and cared for. Lindsay, moved by this discovery and, and through a number of interviews with um, Harriet Gumby to solicit her trust, um, arranged for a Heritage Day tour of the site with people, and this was okayed by the Gumbies. And she invited Danny's family to attend since they had been searching for their great-grandfather's grave for years. So, Danny, why don't you take it from there and share your story in, in whatever way you wish with us. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm very grateful to the Heart and Soul program. Um, without it, I, we honestly, we would not have even found the cemetery where my great-great-grandfather is buried. Um, and it's, it's, it's funny how we even met Lindsay. Um, we had been searching. We went down, I think it was uh, uh, near the end of August last year. We went down. We figured, you know what, we're just going to go and we're going to try to find this cemetery. We didn't have any information. We didn't have an address. Um, we just, we knew it was down there somewhere and, uh, we had some, you know, kind of sketchy leads to find it, but we went down there and we looked all over and could not find the cemetery. So we figured, you know what, let's call the Cumberland County Historical Society. They've got to know where this is at. So we called and we, uh, met Lindsay through, um, through this call. And she said, you know what, we're doing a tour of the cemetery and this, this church um, on, on a particular date. And we signed up to go, and we went, and we found this little cemetery. Now, it's funny because if, if, we, would not, if we would have found that cemetery the, that day we went down there, we never would have met Lindsay, um, I, and I never would have been able to share the story with you. So I, you know, everything just kind of came together and it's just, it's just been such an exciting journey for my family. And the, the thing that, I mean, it just touched my heart that the preservation efforts for this little church in the cemetery, the whole community really kind of pulled together to, 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 for this preservation effort. And it was just so touching. And for the first time in my life, I felt like I had a home. And, mm. you know, speaking of oral tradition, the only way that we even knew about Mount Holly Springs was through an oral tradition. We have no documents. We have no letters. Um, we don't have much of anything uh, tying us to Mount Holly Springs, but oral stories that we have heard over the years. And the story we heard was um, our my dad's family had settled in Pennsylvania, and we knew that to be Mount Holly Springs. That's all that I knew. Um, we didn't have any names to go with. And um, one of my cousins who is into, she's really good at genealogical research, um, she had helped us find, we found some census documents from Mount Holly Springs, and we found um, some ward names. So um, it was, it, it was, still difficult to be able to track all this because um, African-American lineages are, are difficult to trace because of the fact that there weren't records kept for slaves, you know, things like birth certificates, death certificates, or even marriage licenses. Um, none of those records were kept, so we didn't have any of that to really go on. Um, we had the name of my grandfather um, and 
I think through the the genealogical research that my cousin did, she found his father's name and then his father's name, my great-great-grandfather. So we had that lead to go on. And it, it's been said that um, Henry, my great-great-grandfather, was a slave who escaped from Maryland and came to Pennsylvania to fight for the Union in the Civil War. And we don't know if he settled in Mount Holly Springs when he was fighting in the Civil War if after, or if it was afterwards, but he had eventually settled in Mount Holly Springs, and we knew he was buried there. So, um, like I've already said, we found him. Um, he had one of the most beautiful like, stones. He had one of those beautiful yeah. stones in that cemetery. It was it yeah. it was amazing to see the the preservation of that stone. Um, it just kind of blew me away. You know, I have these pictures of it, and I took my kids down to see it, and it's their great 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 grandfather. And, and I really, honestly, never I never thought that it would even be possible to find this ancestry because of the fact that there aren't records to really trace back. So this whole thing has been a journey. Um, it's, it's like retracing the steps of my father's family back to their original settlement in Pennsylvania. And, you know, I I had to fight back tears when we were down there, you know, looking at the stone and talking about this. It just, it's so overwhelming and such a wonderful thing. It's such a blessing. And we, we definitely want to help in... Yeah, your family has been a blessing to the preservation. Well, we absolutely would not pass up the chance to help out with this because this is a piece of my family's history. And we heard about the efforts to preserve the church. And um, Lindsay had said that uh, the contents of the church, you know, they were they were concerned about the stability of the church because it had fallen into such disrepair over the years. So... They were talking about moving the contents of the church to a storage facility, and we talked. They talked about you know possibly paying for um, you know somewhere to store these things. And and my husband thought, well, he's a truck driver. Um, he's had his own little trucking company for the past nine years, and he said, you know, we could find a good storage trailer to put the contents in. It would be big enough to put all the contents in, and we could just store it down there right by the church. So he found the trailer, we brought it down, and the the contents were loaded on, um, it was the United Way Day of Caring. So, you know, community is just all involved in this whole thing, and it's it's just a beautiful thing to see. They loaded the contents on, I believe it was October 14th of 2015, and, you know, it's just so exciting to see how this community is pulled together. So when my husband... He had to move, once the trailer was loaded, he, we had to move it to a safer location so it wouldn't be so close to the road. So he came down after work one day, and he went to move the trailer. He first had to park his trailer in the parking lot of a little paper mill in Mount, um, Mount Holly Springs. And he went and he moved the trailer, and he came back to get his work trailer. And two guys came out to meet him to ask if he was okay said, yeah, I just had to move this trailer down. You know, we're participating in a preservation effort um, to save the little church that's right down the street. And he said, oh, well, we did the 3D scan of the church. So <laughs> we it, it's so amazing how this town has come together that 
he just bumped into the two guys who did the 3D scan. It, the 3D scan was donated, and which is an expensive thing. They donated mm-hmm. the 3D scan, and it, it's just amazing to see how this community has come together. It's such a blessing, and I'm just so thrilled to have been a part of it. Well, Danny, thanks. Thank you so much for sharing um, this remarkable story, and to your whole family on on everything that they have contributed to it. And uh, we might get back. We'll move on to e- Elaine's good stories as as well. And um, uh, again, people can ask questions as they wish. It's such a great story. Thank you so much, Danny. So we'll move on to Elaine Brett. She's a resident of the North Fork Valley in Colorado. She was active in that community's Heart and Soul project and played a key role in getting the lights back on in Paonia, Colorado's Paradise Theater, which had gone dark. She has over 30 years' experience in facilitation, strategic planning, and management in commercial, nonprofit, and governmental sectors. Currently, she's on the boards of the Friends of the Paradise Theater and the Western Colorado Community Foundation. Elaine, uh, please share your stories that led to action in the North Fork Valley. Okay, thanks. Uh, thanks, Fran, and um, uh, welcome everybody to the call. Um, I, I'm looking at the questions, and I'm, and I'm hoping that I can address some of them as I go along here because I think they fall right into line. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I'm seeing on the on the um, uh, questions is people are asking, well, how do you get stories started? How, I, how what prompts it? How do how do you get uh, connected to people? And um, I like to think that if you create the time and space for listening, that People will come with their stories. Uh, people want to be heard. They they uh, they really do, and um, they love talking about uh, their community and about special places in their community. And um, as we were embarking on the Heart and Soul project and reaching out to our community, and as things started falling into place, we we did start to see a pattern of the importance of our little theater uh, in uh, Paonia, Colorado, uh, which. Um, Ended up being really a, a center point, or we we called it a heart spot, um, in in the process. And and the theater had uh, many great stories from uh, decades gone by. It was built in in 1928, and so there were generations of people who had experiences had um, uh, experiences with their family uh, going to the theater. Uh, experiences of seeing musical productions, shows, having community fundraisers, uh, experiences of a special movie or, or a special uh, occasion that happened at that theater, and, um, and, and some really fun stories. You know, the first kiss up in the balcony, we got a couple, we got a number of those. Um, actually made the county commissioner blush by bringing that up, so I, I, uh, I wonder, I wonder about that. Um, and um and and stories that that really showed that this had been very important to the community over the years um so it it, it arose as a very important thing uh, interestingly enough during our heart and soul process uh there there was kind of the perfect storm of events that um looked that made it look like the theater was going to go dark it was going to close um, we had had also used the theater for reflecting back to the community with some different projects, and and we'd fill the seats with uh, with folks um, wanting to see the videos and wanting to hear the community stories. Um, 
but it looked like it was going to go dark. The owners were leaving town. They weren't renewing their lease. The, uh, I mean, the business owners, the owner of the building was going to put it up for sale, and the world was turning to digital projection. Didn't have. Uh, we had uh, film projectors in at the time. Um, so, um, because this was such an important place in the community, uh, people really wanted to keep it going, and we uh, put together a, a, a team. Um, that um, did, that held it together, that, that kept the theater going, that also ended up being the uh, genesis of a new nonprofit in town that uh, raised money for the um, uh, not only for the digital projector but also for the um, the uh, renovations, and we also got investors who volunteered who said they would loan the money to buy the building. Um, so that's how important this this place was or is in, in our community. Um, and we did. Uh, someone had a question about our Kickstarter process. We we did a, a Kickstarter. Uh, we were trying to raise forty thousand uh, dollars. We had some matching money on the line. The state of Colorado felt that uh, saving lo uh, local theaters was a very important thing to do. Uh, so they had money on the line. We had a matching grant sitting there for us of twenty thousand dollars if we could match it. Um, we not only raised the 40, but we we went up way above and uh, beyond that and raised about $100,000 through our Kickstarter campaign. So it was really successful and, and really a testimony to how important uh, this place, this theater, was to the community. Um, so um, a few a few things when I reflect on on the heart and soul process, on the storytelling that we did about it and in it, um, we used the theater as as uh, a venue. Uh, we had several uh, different um, initiatives going on that um, gathered people in the theater to reflect back on, on the stories that we heard. Uh, one of them was a, a really neat project that was uh, by our community radio station, and it was called Pass the Mic. And this was a, a gathering of stories by children. Uh, they brought uh, groups of children in and um, and taught them everything from what the First Amendment means to how to do an interview to how to handle uh, a, a microphone and how to handle video. And these kids went out in the community, and I tell you, that was just an amazing thing to see how they could open up people in the community that uh, we adults probably might not be able to get to. And uh, there was a, there's a question on the, on the list here about effective ways and what kind of training um, hey, these kids had it all, and I think I think letting kids loose uh, together and get them involved with the story collection um, can really change things and really um, uh, get people involved uh, and make them feel more comfortable uh, because they'll tell they'll they'll tell a kid something that they won't tell you or me. Uh, and we re we video recorded that, and we had several uh, playbacks uh, that the kids presented their interviews, and, um, and 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 people were fascinated by it. Um, we also had uh, a local theater director, a local teacher, uh, do a, pro a program. Um, we wanted to address a specific issue in the community and decided that one of the, the hot buttons at the time uh, was uh, in the schools. It was about stereotyping. It was about bullying. And uh, we, we let this theater director loose with kids. And uh, they produced a uh, production um, that we ended up playing twice in an absolutely packed theater, and they called it Hippies and Rednecks Unite. 
and uh, they told their stories of what was going on in the theater uh, or in the uh, schools, how they were seeing and perceiving prejudice and stereotyping and bullying, and uh, people came out of there in tears. Um, it was just a, a beautiful event, an amazing way to to reflect again back to the community, um, the stories from uh, from our from our uh, our community and from it broadly. Uh, so that use of, of space of, uh, to, to not only gather stories but to, to, but to reflect them back, uh, we also have found that by saving this theater, um, it, has, it is a real jewel in our little town. It's a town of 1,500 people, uh, and we need all the help we can to draw people down to our main street and uh, to have people present uh, to go into the restaurants, to go into the shops and galleries, and so the uh, Paradise Theater has been a real center point as well for our downtown and has end up, ended up being uh, truly an economic driver in our small town. So one of the, uh, one of the effects of, <laughs> of all of this is that we've got a pretty vibrant little downtown because of this theater and, and a few other things that uh, uh, continue to attract people into, um, into the small town. And... I think that's. I think I'll leave it there, Fran, and we'll take yeah, well, uh, take questions. I, I think. I think one thing, and you might have missed. Maybe I missed this, but I think another thing that really struck me when I heard this story before about the theater, and when you were giving, you know, sharing stories back to people, mm-hmm. is that um, many people said, "I've never seen this much diversity in this theater before." It's either a film that one group will go to and the others won't, or vice versa. And that, you know, it really pulled together a diverse group of people just into the theater and being together. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the kids' programs in particular, uh, they, um, because parents would come and neighbors would come and, and we'd see a, a whole different uh, set of faces coming in, um, which in, in the front helped the theater itself because people said, huh, that's a, that's a pretty cool place to go to. I think I'll go back for another, for a movie. But, um, but in the, um, just in the community itself, having people in the room together, um, was, uh, and, and from diverse and, and different, uh, uh, parts of the community, uh, really was a nice draw and it was a wonderful thing to see. Terrific. Well, thank you so much for that story and thanks for beginning to answer some of these questions. And we're going to get to the questions in a minute. Um, I also want to thank people that also sent us their stories to action. And uh, from all that we've heard so far, it's very clear that stories can indeed lead to meaningful action. We've seen it, and we're so glad that uh, you have reflected back to us that that's happening in your towns as well. And uh, these these will um and this oh, oh here here we go um interestingly, some of the themes that emerged from those submissions uh before anyone heard our guest speakers were very similar they were there were stories other stories about saving historic theaters that's very big in a lot of towns where these theaters that had been abandoned people realize how precious they are uh to to the fabric of the community and to the community's identity. Many were nearly lost, and many people are starting these campaigns to save historical theaters or other buildings like the AME Zion Church. There were other stories that helped about um, how stories helped heal racial divides. There were stories um, about promoting understanding. There were stories of loss that rallied communities to support their neighbors. 
There were stories uh, that helped authorities understand the need um, in uh, maybe a low-income neighborhood for a community park or a sidewalk or a bus route, and then they've acted on it. So know that a selection of those stories will be featured in our next blog, so look for that. It was very rich, and we can't share them all um, today. We'll, we'll just do this question and answer um, piece right now, but know that we will feature some of those wonderful stories in our blog coming up. So let's get to uh, the questions. And uh, again, some of these have been um, answered, but let's expand on some of these. Um, Mimi, I'll, I'll just uh, check in with you first about how we can encourage folks um, to have a story. This is from Libby from South Carolina, and even Jody from Pennsylvania sent in a similar question. Um, saying, you know, so many people think they don't have a story. So what strategies do you suggest in gaining the trust of a community reluctant to share stories? And I think Elaine has an idea like a youth children, <laughs> and, and that can um, cross over. But uh, other ideas, Mimi, about how you encourage um, people to share their stories and, and realize that they do have stories that are important. Mm -hmm. Well, there's two things. Um, one of them is definitely that trust building. And I think that, you know, the, the great example that Danny went into in detail about, you know, Mount Holly Springs is just an outstanding example of the work that, you know, the greater, greater Carlisle Heart and Soul team did. Um, you know, with, um, you know, that community, you know, Harriet Gumby was, you know, the, um, you know, was, you know, the, the, whose father, you know, whose descent, whose ancestors, you know, had started the church, she was really, really reluctant to share her story. And what happened was, you know, Lindsay, um, who's just this incredibly talented and people-oriented person, you know, persisted and, you know, went there several times. And it took her several, you know, several meetings with Harriet for her, for Harriet to begin to open up. So, you know, I think that that persistence and this willingness to build a genuine relationship is really, really vital. The second piece, I think, that makes Heart and Soul so um, successful in reaching people that have not typically opened up is that, you know, it brings so much that, you know, there's this huge emphasis on joy and on having fun and to see, to making things joyful, to um, discover the joy in connecting with other people and, you know, finding um, meaningful, in, you know, engaging ways that will make people open up. So, you know, in, you know, what we're beginning to see some of, you know, and I think Greater Carlisle also did a great job on this is using the visual arts, you know, to, as a way to, um, to bring that joy of, of sharing and sharing stories. Does that make sense? That's, that's terrific. I, I love the joy aspect. And and I'd like to add, since I had the privilege of meeting um, Harriet Gumby, that one of the reasons she was hesitant, and you never know what it is, but her house had um, that she grew up in, it turns out, was demolished, and that was a very sad thing for her. I um, mean, she, she lives right close by, and everything is good around that, but she was afraid if the, the church itself was deteriorating, and she didn't want it to be torn down. And it was good that, in a way, that she waited for this time when people really wanted to gather together and save this, because I think people um, were considering condemning this building. They didn't really know what it was all about, um, and now that's certainly not the case. So she had a right to be hesitant, 
And it's important to not only honor what people, their, their concerns, but really to build the trust and, and, um, and, and make sure that you hold that trust. And anyway, um, which I'm sure everybody in heart and soul certainly does and everybody on this call would. Any, anything else that comes to anybody's mind before we move on to the next question? Yeah, this is Elaine. I'd, I'd like to make a couple of points on, on, um, uh, getting getting those hard to get stories. Um, three points really. One, um, go where people are. Uh, we've tried a lot of different things, and you know, just confronting somebody and saying, "Tell me your story," uh, doesn't work very well. Yeah, sometimes it does, but um, we would do things like we had prints made of old historic um, uh, photographs, and we displayed them at some of our festivals, and had a lot of fun with people, especially old timers, come in and looking at these old pictures and and telling us about their childhood uh or telling us about their experiences and um and and it just it prompted things and we found if we went into their churches and and talked to them it was a much more comfortable so going going where they already were rather than trying to come into a um you know a sterile meeting room or something um the other thing that I think is is so extremely important and I think I mentioned this is is the listening authentic listening uh, we talk a lot about talking, but authentic listening, I think, is important. And if, if someone's just is sitting there taking notes and not really uh, um, showing that they're interested or, or authentically listening, that really turns people off. So uh, practice authentic listening, and, and it will help. And the other is asking the right questions. Um, we, we started asking what matters most to you instead of, you know, what is, what's your community values or what's important or tell us your story. But... You know what's important. What what matters most to you about your community, and and that seemed to really open people up. Uh, it was a very soft way of of getting them to uh, think about what was important and and the, and the non-negotiable things that they wanted to keep in their community. Thank you. I think that's yes. Often it's what do you love about your community? What's what's a time when your community uh, was just the place that you wanted to be? Uh, so questions like that are open-ended and help those stories come out. Um, let's get to, I also just want to address what, Elaine, what you just addressed about going out to people. Mary Charles from Georgia is is asking, you know, I'd like to hear ways you solicit diverse stories. We ask for recommendations from each person we interview, but in doing this, we find it hard to get a diversity of interviews, and we want to hear from all genders and ethnicities, it, it is hard. Could you just explain what a community network analysis is? It's, it's a little bit technical, but it helps if you know the different sectors of your community, and this is mm -hmm. something you can find on the Orton site, then you can be very purposeful about going out. Can you just speak to that a little bit, Elaine? Uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a real advocate for the community network analysis uh, that uh, – uh, it's a very thoughtful way of, of asking different people in the community, you know, who who are the, who should we be talking to, um, and um, really brainstorming on it and getting to some of the segments uh, that, you know, if you just stay within your own peer group, you'll you'll never break out of it. Um, and one of the you know things that we identified in, in our process, the churches, for example, there are a lot of churches in in the town of Paonia. Um, and um, 
none of us on the team were particularly affiliated uh, with all of those churches. But we found it important that we, we reached out to, to those and, and um, identified it uh, as, as a place we needed to go. Um, we have a coal mining community here, and we uh, invited people onto our team from the coal mining uh, industry, and they were very helpful at pointing to uh, their network of, uh, of people. And I, I think by, by really thoughtfully um, starting out if you, in identifying the places, um, the groups, uh, the, the different people, and people who you don't necessarily associate with and reaching out to them, uh, it's really important. And uh, that network analysis, I think, is vital to anybody doing this kind of community work. Right. So sometimes you're stepping out of your comfort zone, but that's, uh, that's how you, you get really rich and, and rich stories and excellent information. Uh, we have a question from Kate in Washington. How do we get busy professionals to do a storytelling sharing event uh, that is for them? Uh, I, have, I have one thought. I don't know if... Um, Mimi or, or even even Danny, that, that whole when you're raising kids and you're out there working and doing those things, these are really busy people. Um, is there a way to involve them in a community effort? Sure. I, I'd be happy to answer that. Um, I know in Meadville what they are doing is – they have um, found this great connector to moms, and they're, you know, targeting single moms because for sing especially single moms who, you know, it's really difficult for them to make it to, you know, the traditional meetings. So they have teamed up with um, a woman in an organization who runs this mobile daycare um, service and what, what this, this mobile, um, daycare does is it provides childcare at these different kinds of events. So what they did, what they've done is tag teamed with, um, this mobile daycare and used opportunities when moms come pick up the kids, you know, where are, you know, at these events, you know, providing daycare to get, collect stories from those moms. And they've also gone into daycares, um, you know, where there are working women to collect stories there. And I think it's a matter of finding, um, you know, the right organization or connector that will help you identify those, mo you know, that are good at reaching those those populations and targeting opportunities where they're going to have the time and the means to um, to share some of the stories. Terrific. And somebody else was popping in. Was that you, Danny? Or maybe that was it. Might have been, yeah, might, might have been me. I was, I was gonna, I was gonna say, bring Go food. Um, bring, bring food. food. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, it, it's you laugh at it, but you know, if people, if people start to understand that your gatherings are gonna be fun and you're gonna enjoy it, um, we, we experimented with a series of, of gatherings which we called a slice of the pie. And um, we had a wonderful baker in town, and we bought pies. <laughs> and, and, um, and, you know, and people came, and they, they shared food together. They, they shared. And, and, and so, if, you know, if someone has a good experience, it's more likely that they're going to tell someone in their peer group to, to come, that they had, they had fun, they had a good piece of pie, and, and, um, uh, and the word spreads. And uh, I, I think that was very effective. <laughs> Fantastic. I I agree. As a as a busy mom, um, you hit on the two most important things. 
<laughs> child care and food. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Okay. There, there you go. And um, so, well said. Uh, on to the uh, – another topic is about um, what particular topic can be queried um, or does the story have to be spontaneous? I think we kind of got to that. You know, let's – we're talking about our town, where you live, your community. Uh, another, you know, what prompts do you use to get started? Uh, individual storytelling versus group storytelling uh, from Nebraska and the other from Washington State. You might check on our there's a there's a wonderful set of resources um, at at the end of the Google Doc. Uh, much a lot of stuff, but one is a storytelling guide that the Orton Family Foundation put out that has questions to ask, how to conduct an interview, things to think about for recording. So some of these uh, technical questions will be there in that guide, and I think you'll find it very useful. So we'll go on to, and I think Elaine also covered this, but just if there's something else um, that's left open, there are a couple of people, uh, TJ from North Carolina, how do we gather and distribute our stories most effectively? She's mainly interested in over social media. Um, so a lot of questions also from Oregon, how do you get stories out to the widest audience? Um, how do you share them on, on the web? Elaine, did you share some of those stories that you were showing at the theater, which is certainly one way to broadcast mm -hmm. it to your community. Did you also use social media, or were there other ways that you got these stories out to the community? Yeah, we did. We used Facebook. Uh, we had our, our website that we pointed people to. Um, we had, um, we had the, the wonderful opportunity to have uh, some really good uh, videographers uh, in, the, in town, and and, and they created some wonderful pieces that we put out uh, on the web. We directed people to watch them. Um, we also would show them in some of the, the public meetings. Um, we kept a uh, we kept a uh, notebook of all of the print media uh, that um, that we had, and we were very uh, mindful of constantly putting out press releases, putting stories out. Um, having the local reporters show up, uh, and um, I mean, that, that, was, that was a job in and of itself to have someone be a communications person to uh, share that back in the community. Uh, but uh, I I'd say of the social media, we, we used Facebook probably the most, and um, and then pointing people to our website for the um, for the pass the mic, for the what matters most videos, and, and for the other things that uh, um, we could uh, uh, put up on the web. And did you feel that there's an advantage or disadvantage to recording stories with video versus just voice? This is a question from Jane in New York. Yeah, and it, uh, I, yeah I, I I think visual is very powerful. Uh, and, you know, most people learn visually. Uh, and um, recording the visual and seeing the expressions, seeing seeing people, um, when they would, you know, if they, if they had an objection to having that publicly out, of course we, we would use it. We did get releases for all of that. But, uh, being able to also put, uh, places and, uh, scenery and, and things for people to connect with visually, um, uh, personally I think was, was a, a very important thing. Um, it's interesting to watch people when they're watching themselves, uh, on, on the screen or, um, you know, on their computer, that um, there's a whole different reaction, and I I think we we had some challenges in trying to get these audio interviews and trying to glean 
um, the the nuggets and the important things out of it. Um, it's a real task to sit down and listen to hours and hours of of audio recordings of people. Uh, that uh, that's a real challenge, um, and and sometimes it, you know even a short video can sum it up really well because you've got those those visual cues in there. Okay, you know it it, it depends also what what you have at hand. Uh, voice, exactly. Voice can do it, but it's great if you've got video for just the reasons that Elaine is is talking about. So back to to Mimi, there were two questions about archiving material, because as Elaine has noted, sometimes there are hours of, of material. Um, what platform or method do you employ to conserve stories? Uh, Mimi, any any thoughts about what your towns are doing to archive and conserve uh, this material that they're collecting? Mm -hmm. That definitely is a challenge, and again, you know, I think that the Greater Carlisle Group, um, you know, has been doing a great job with that. They have the, the you know the distinct advantage of working with um you know the 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 historical society the Cumberland County Historical Society and they have a great um oral i think that it's very accessible to everybody but there is this great online oral history um platform that um that will that you can upload stories to and that that has been very it's i think it's it's pretty low cost and Lindsay and their um, oral history um, expert over there really recommend it. Um, you know, I think that what I can do is send the information over to Caitlin to, yeah, to share exactly. with a wider group. So, um, but I, it's, I, they tell me that it's extremely easy to do analysis and um, sort through that, um, through that system. Terrific, and I think Lindsay is uh, now back from class and can add that uh, potentially onto the Google Doc right now. So, mm -hmm. so thank you for that tip. I'd like to. Uh, this is an interesting question from um, Mark in Washington. Has Heart and Soul had a hand in helping a community address their poverty situation? And I would say, in gathering stories, it's a, it's a little different. It's important to go to low income neighborhoods perhaps, but I think that there are a lot of stories um, about neighborhoods that have changed. I'll just tell one, and then I'll open it up to see if there are others. I think there's one from Williamsport, probably Mimi can tell us about. But I know in Newport, Vermont, um, they went out and collected story, and in, in, in the most dangerous neighborhood in Newport, they kept hearing about community gardens from the elderly and from young people. And and this one woman who told me the story, she said, I'm not a gardener at all. I just couldn't believe what I was hearing. And they found an abandoned lot. They built a community garden. And now that neighborhood is one of the safest and most neighborly in the town. It was a complete transformation, just one thing, and that was, and that was from listening. So there are things that can happen to a neighborhood that might feel very disenfranchised. Um, but just giving hope, um, checking in with their neighbors, takes um can can help people just feel more connected and um uh continue to move forward. Uh I don't know if you want to share a uh, Mimi the the Williamsport 2nd Street. Sounds like that's a pretty successful story. 
Sure, sure. I, I, you know, I know that um, Alice is. I think I believe that Alice is on today's call. Alice Trowbridge is just this terrific um, and energetic um, co-project coordinator, along with um, with Mary um, up in Williamsport and Mary Woods, and they have been doing a lot of work. Um, just really, I think that what's been really wonderful about um, the Williamsport project, heart of Williamsport, is that. They have really just been um, just really doubling down on reaching, um, you know, those areas that have been, you know, patently missing in, you know, the community dialogue. And they're, um, they've been putting a lot of focus on um, the Second Street area. And I think that what they've been trying to do is just bring um, some things that some, you know, to help answer some of the immediate needs there. So, you know, I was talking to Alice and Mary um, just very recently this past week, and they were telling me about a community garden. Um, I think that also, um, you know, she's shared this with Fran. They've shared this with Fran, but I think that they're also working on um, just making it a more hospitable place with shade, um, with um, playgrounds and amenities for the kids there. And what Mary um, was telling me was that, um, that, you know, people are beginning to feel that it's a safer place now because of the attention that um, Heart of Williamsport has been able to give um, to Second Street. Yeah. Listening is very powerful. I was also told a story today from Galesburg, Illinois, that one of the things I kept hearing um, about in certain neighborhoods was about food insecurity. This is not a topic people feel comfortable talking about, but they heard it enough that they brought on a backpack program uh, yeah. in the schools there, and they started researching, and somebody asked, asked about research. They started researching, well, what is the situation here, and found that um, uh, many more more kids were in trouble than they thought, and they started dealing with that. So it's really starting to listen and then figuring out what you can do. So this is this is very powerful work. How so? One more question before we we uh, kind of close up here. There is one about how do we begin the conversation about a heart and soul community visioning process in our community. So any any connection from story, how a community can begin a visioning process, if if that makes sense. Are you talking about how a community can start up a heart and soul? Well, no, is that I think your question? This, is, this, is, this is Brenda from Iowa, and she says, how do we begin a conversation about a heart and soul community visioning process in our community? And I think, you know, not, not completely sure where she's coming from, but part of when we begin to gather story, how can that lead to a vision, a new vision for your community? Yeah. So stories um, kind of look to the past, but we want to start also looking at the future with yeah. that foundation. Right. Right. Uh, Can I tell you? Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, oh, I just I just have one other wonderful um, example from um, Williamsport, if that's okay. Um, yeah. Can I share? Sure. So um, what the Williamsport team has been doing is they have been um, working very hard recently to bring together you know, in a strategic way, very, very different groups to to tell their story and also to listen to their story. And they, Mary and Alice told me this amazing example where, in one event, where they brought together 
you know, the older generation of civic leaders. So Williamsport has this very um, robust group of, of, of civic leaders who are older and who are beginning to age out. And, and the, you know, the city really needs to build up its team of new leaders. So what they did was they brought together old and new um, civic leaders together. And one um, um, of the older civic leaders you know, is very prominent in the planning field, um, you know, in, in, you know, Lycoming County. And, you know, he had, you know, just is, you know, you know, has been around the block and, you know, may have some views that, you know, that, you know, that things have been the way that they have always been. But um, what Alice and Mary told me was that when he sat down to talk with some of the newer leaders, the newer leaders, you know, um, really, um, you know, talked, shared with them, you know, their vision about how things can, might be a little bit, could be done differently. And, you know, that genuine listening, when he really heard, listened to them, it really began, you know, he's had to sit back and say, you know, you're right. Maybe you're right. Maybe I have a cynical view of this, and maybe things can be different, and that we might be able to do things differently. And I think that that visioning starts, you know, like, you know, Fran, you've been, you know, like, you know the theme of this this talk is about with that kind of genuine listening and this openness that things might be different than what you have thought. Mm, great. And Elaine, you had a quick thought. Yeah, um, the, I, I think the the whole part is the, the the storytelling is very important part of visioning. Um, too often, you know, consultants will come in and, and drop a process on you that is kind of top down, and this really is a bottoms up effort. And going to the community and, and understanding, clearly understanding what matters most to to the people of the community. Um, starts to generate some words and phrases that uh, can now be used into planning documents and into uh, the, the bigger picture of things. Uh, understanding what things are, are not negotiable. Um, in, in our area, one of the, the strongest values that we brought out was, was how, I mean, everyone agreed how important our, our land is, our land and our water. We're in a rural area. How important the scenery is. And um, those things become a part of, of the visioning plan of looking to the future. You know, it's not negotiable. We don't want things that are going to interrupt our landscape that's going to damage our water. Um, it, it will all come back to that as the conversations go on about what um, kind of economic development there should be or what kind of pro what does progress look like. And um, I think it's a great starting point for that visioning process to, to really understand what is just so important uh, that you wouldn't want to change it in your community, and then where do we go from there? Yeah. Thank you, Elaine. So um, thank you all. This has been a terrific conversation. I'd like to just give each of you just that last, that, that final thought, either advice for our audience on how to get started, um, or you know, even uh, Danny, you've been you've been listening to everything that's going on, and you gave us you know just one of the most precious stories. Uh, what are what are your thoughts at, at the end of this call about you know how involvement um, has influenced you and your family or or what you're thinking at this moment on this call? Um, well, community has um, played such a big part in my life, and I was thinking about you know what, what why do I feel so such a, a, a pride in my community? And it's really because of the work of people like you. Um, in, in my hometown, we have a very strong tradition of um, community helping each other. And 
um, being a part of each other's lives. We, we have something called the Milton Harvest Festival that my family's been involved with for, you know, 40 years now. Um, my sister and I had participated in um, our little hometown uh, pageant, and my sister won the Harvest Festival Princess Pageant 1994, and I won the pageant in 1995, I believe it was. Ooh. And it's it's that kind of involvement that um, I, I love my community where I came from, and that's why it, it was such a surprise for me when I felt this incredible connection with Mount Holly Springs. Um, I never felt that before, that I mm. felt like this place is my home. Um, and it, it was, like I said, through the work of, of hardworking people that really care about communities. And if you care about communities, you care about families. And that um, growing up in Milton and having that experience with just being involved with the community um, gave me a sense that I belonged. I belonged there. And this is my family. These are my people. And that is doing things together as a family. Is, it's always meant so much. And um, that's, that's a way that, that you really bring communities together. So, um, you know, using children, it just everybody loves kids. And yeah. um, <laughs> that, that also can. You know, I just love that. So yeah. it's things like that that, you know, we have to make each other feel like family. And I think that, um, I think that you're doing that. Okay. Danny, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for being on this call. And, uh, uh, quickly, Elaine, your your final thoughts or tips for for folks in our who are listening. Yeah, um, well, Danny said it. Connection, um, building connection uh, in the community, um, and and people connect when they have something to connect to, like a story uh, or a picture, or um, and and when that happens, it 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 does a lot of things. And one of the things that it does is it it creates a healthier community. Um, uh, and and where people see each other as people and not you know opposing groups. And um, there's a wonderful quote that I love um, from Margaret Wheatley that says, "It's impossible to hate someone whose story you know." And um, and and I think that's really true. Uh, that you know if you if you have that knowledge of someone, if you have that connection that uh, we we can live together better in a community and understand each other better. Awesome. Thank you, Elaine. And Mimi, uh, your last reflection. Um, I think that, that sometimes it seems like a heavy lift, you know, as, as you're doing this kind of work, but, you know, there is such a huge joy in connecting with other people and learning and listening and hearing, discovering all these things about your community and that, you know, that as you move, as, you know, folks move forward in this work, just think about that joy because it's definitely there. It's definitely there in your community and you, it can be had. Awesome. I want to thank Mimi, Elaine, and Danny for your powerful stories, wealth of knowledge, and sage advice. Thank you all for being part of this call. And thank you, friends. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> and many thanks to uh, all of you across the U.S. and beyond for joining us today. Also, thanks to the Orton Family Foundation who makes these sessions possible. We hope you also take a moment to fill out our brief surveys to help us continue to improve our call series. 
Uh, please join us for our next event on March 23rd when we partner with the Citizens Institute on Rural Design to explore creative placemaking, economic development for the next century with Zach Ray Manheimer. He's the Vice President of Creative Placemaking at, the Iowa, at Iowa Business Growth. He'll share how to make your town attractive to creative professionals and to recruit and retain young people. So note that that's at an earlier time. It's from 1 to 2 Eastern Standard Time. Uh, so make a lunch date with us, and we look forward to it. Look for our links um, uh, to our survey and the March event registration at the top of the Google Doc under Announcements. A recording of this call will be sent to participants and posted to our website, www.orton.org. Good story hunting to you all. Hope to see you all next time. Bye-bye, and thanks again, Mimi, Elaine, and Danny. Bye-bye, y'all. Thanks, Fran. Thanks, Caitlin. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Thank, Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. Okay.